everybody on the whole podcast. Okay. <laughs> At least I don't do the Donald Duck voice version. Welcome to the News. Episode 67. No? That sort of just Not gets into more. the drunk casting. <laughs> Cherry Developer News, episode number 67 for Monday, again, uh, November 4th, 2013, Election Day week. I'm Ken Rimple. Sujan Kapadia. Joel Confino. Oh, you're shortening it now. I like it. And uh, we're talking all tech that we can, anything we're interested in. So we'll start with something that uh, our fearless leader wrote. Uh, Aaron Mulder, who is the CTO here, uh, wrote something about... Uh, Five tips for big software projects. Do you want to take this one, Joel? Sure. And so the background for this is, uh, you know, something that's been in the news, and that's the fact that the healthcare.gov site has had tons of technical glitches. So I'm sure all of you as techies have seen that and sort of in some ways chuckled thinking, how on earth did they think this was actually going to work when we took a whole bunch of different things, plugged them all together, tested them for a week. And you know, go. And then <laughs> and, and stop. And go and stop and go and stop and crash and burn. So this is you know, in some ways going to turn out to be a um, main use will be a nice case study in textbooks. You know, I went to, I took my software engineering classes at a master's degree at Penn State and professor gave us all kinds of good use cases of like, per, you know, like software development disasters. So this is sure to be a great one for testing and, you know, a lot of things that, that maybe didn't happen. Although there's a lot of speculation, we don't know exactly what happened, but you, can hear, much, yeah. but you could pretty much guess, um, you know, it seems like a lot of software projects as you've probably heard of, and you're just surprised that like, this was done on this scale, and nobody said, you know, this probably isn't going to work. Yeah. But um, Aaron Mulder came up with, you know, I think in response to that, some tips for big software projects. That And it's interesting, and, you know, it's kind of like some of these things that, you know, if they had been taken into consideration are valuable for big software. So that's kind of it. So let's do what you want to do from the bottom up, five depth sure. to one. Uh, now he'll probably kill us. Let's, let's do it from the first one down. So great software is never built on a poor architecture. And so his point there is obvious. Um, you know, divide and conquer would be smart. However, if you're basically taking a bunch of little pieces of components that have never worked together before, and that's your architecture. Uh, yeah, it sounds like some painful memories I had back in the late 90s. Yeah. Hey, this is, this is a big IBM mainframe. And we're going to give you this piece of software. Now send a whole bunch of uh, variables separated by vertical bars and get an answer back. And Knowles... Don't show up, right. but when they come back, they'll just be two vertical bars. But right, right. take that in the large, right? Or, or, or even better, you know, uh, this was my experience. Well, you know, we have this team, and you're going to integrate with them, and we have this really important deadline. We've already sent out like a million pieces of marketing material, okay? And the way that you and this team are going to know that your stuff works is I'm going to give you a spreadsheet right now. That spreadsheet is going to tell you what they're going to do. Then on Go Live, because you've both been true to the spreadsheet, we shouldn't have to do anything but turn it on, right? And your two <laughs> systems are going to be able to integrate. Right. Yeah, that works. Yeah, that ended up with a lot of whipping. <laughs> The pain, boss, the pain. Um, all right, so that's one. Uh, generated code, number two. Generated code is terrible. Now, okay, I'm going to put my hand up. I wrote a book on a, on a thing called Spring Ruin Action. Generated code. I understand where we're going with this. So go ahead. Yeah, I mean, this one I'll, you know, I'll say generated code can be terrible. Yeah, it depends it, what you're doing. Yeah, it really is. So, But, you know, the point I think of Aaron's, um, you know, point here is just that, um Pretty funny, but his one sentence: If you think a junior programmer writes bad code, you should see a programmer try to write a try to program a computer to program. It's oh, just man. as convoluted as it sounds. So, you know, there is a point which is that in a code generator, and this is almost in like anything that has magic. 
you can pretend that you don't have to understand the magic, but in reality, you do have to understand the magic because the edge cases will always require you to understand the magic. Right. And there's a handful of DSLs out there that are really useful that sometimes either expand you know, into code or generate code. And I think they're actually very clear, expressive, and they make the project more powerful. And I mean, you, you can make an argument like this for annotations, right? Yeah. It's not that they're generating code, but they're doing things behind the scenes. And you, as you said, a novice programmer may just start using them and not really know what they're doing. And eventually you have to understand what they're doing because if something happens and you got to debug it. But they're pretty powerful, and some people actually hate annotations, and some people love them. Right. I mean, it's things like generating, you know, if you have schemas for your beans and you use Caster or way back when or something like that, or XML beans to generate them, sure, that gives you a jump start. You can start sharing that all over the place. But if your logic gets generated by, by you know, like uh, code generators, look out. I think, start thinking about Turing complete programming languages and stuff like that. So, uh, all right. Best practices aren't always best. I mean, yeah, I hate the word best practice, don't you? Yeah, I don't know. You know, like a lot of times it's best practice turns out to be just, I don't know, conventional wisdom, which is generic and doesn't always apply to your project. Groupthink. Yeah. Yep. Uh, software without automated tests is just a pile of code. Yep. Definitely, <laughs> definitely wholeheartedly agree with that one. Yes, that's true. I mean, you know, what does it mean that you tested build number 80? Uh, 25 builds later, if you hand tested right. it, it means yeah. nothing. And it's a pile of code that you can't maintain or refactor without with any confidence. That's right. That's right. Uh, and then also integration begins with testing. So yeah, start wiring it together early. Start testing it early. Don't assume that your tests are just unit tests. Right. It's a huge deal. And I think some of the problems we see with these uh, larger software projects is uh, BAs do something, they throw it over to the wall to the developer. The developer does something and they throw it over the wall to the testers. And there's no sort of you know collaboration going on and then things fall apart at the end. Yeah, and then it goes all the way back to the next iteration, which is not an iteration, it's another project. Because by the time they get around to that, they got to get more budget. Because they right. think about that one Microsoft project plan, and it just doesn't really work that way. Agile, agile, agile. You forgot about the developers getting blamed for everything. Too. Oh, uh, always, always. Always. Yeah, it's all our fault. All right. Well, anyway, so if you want to read that in full, go to blog.chariotsolutions.com. You'll find Aaron's uh, article, Five Tips for Big Software Projects, there. Uh, I have one here uh, around the dismantling the monoliths. And so this is, this is me uh, searching around. I saw a tweet uh, from uh, Brian McAllister. Uh, he used to work with us years ago, and he uh, is now working at Groupon. And so this article is an interesting one he tweeted out. I don't know if it's from him. It's from the engineering blog uh, where they're uh, from Adam Geity, I think it is, G-E-I-T-E-Y. So he tweeted this out. So it turns out that uh, they took a year, uh, a, a year out on development uh, to take uh, Groupon's monolithic Ruby on Rails app, which is what it was running. It was running a big Ruby on Rails app, monolithic, large, full-sale stack. Uh, and they were moving it over to Node.js. And they had some very substantial results. Now, not to sit and you know yell about Ruby and say that Ruby is dead. I know that was an article from last week or the week before uh, that some someone thought that Ruby was dead or that Rails was starting to lose its luster and whatever. You know, um, everyone likes their particular platform and they're, they're all beneficial for certain cases. Uh, but what the results they got were that they had very fast updates to page loads. Now they're getting like fifty percent or more better performance out of all the pages on their site. Um, you know, they can ship features very quickly uh, because they've broken things down into smaller, modular, uh, small web applications and such. 
uh, and they got rid of redundant implementations of the same features, which if you look at it, you could take this same thing they talk about in this paper, and it could be a, a monolithic Spring app or a monolithic Python app or a monolithic anything and break it down into small composable pieces, right? Yeah, I think that is where it's a nice case study of obviously when you start out, you know, um, you're going to use something simple because you're, you know, you're developing, you don't want to, you're not going to develop like this giant thing when you're first starting out. And just a nice case study of how they slowly evolved it over time to be this more complicated thing that was needed then to handle the kind of load that they had. And, and these are always good to just be thinking about because I don't think there's, you know, at least I haven't seen a case where jumping to the more complicated thing from day one necessarily makes sense, but it's good to know how you might migrate over time. You ain't going to need it. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, you ain't going to need it, Yagni, right? Big, a big, a big uh, mantra there. So what they did was they took, for example, uh, they, you know, they started with this big monolith, uh, and it was a big Ruby on Rails app. Uh, then they also had a uh, desktop application as well in Java, and they call back-end services, which I, res- I didn't really look at that part, but I assume that's some sort of web service thing. Uh, and then as they got bigger, they had to support mobile apps, so they put a public-facing API out there, and they wrote native applications to communicate with that API. Uh, and so you just started getting larger and larger, heavier and heavier weight things. So they decided we're rewriting everything from the ground up. Um, you know, they took pieces of the architecture, infrastructure, uh, and they, they rebuilt each one as an individual component or set of components. Um, and then they also said, you know, your mobile apps, they're going to basically be uh, using the same API that the web apps are going to be using. So that way you're going to reuse that technology. Um, and then the teams could all move on different various features independently, which was big. So they took, for example, one big web app, and they did things like Groupon deals and goods and getaways and reserve, all as separate smaller Node applications. Uh, now, they said that they were trying to go after uh, Node for a very specific reason. I'm going to quote here. Um, so they said, we were looking for a solution to a very specific problem, efficiently handling many incoming HTTP requests, making parallel API requests to service each of those HTTP requests, and running results in HTML. Uh, we also wanted something that we could confidently monitor, deploy, and support. And they tried a bunch of different protocol stacks. Um, they're going to write up that and say, here's what we tried. You know, here are the different technologies. But they found Node to be a pretty good solution. Uh, they're using Nginx and kind of a routing layer. Uh, which they uh, built called Grout. It's an Nginx code module that routes things to the various pieces. Uh, and then they basically were able to, to put this stuff out there. So they saw their full, full results at the bottom of this blog where the, the page loads are faster by 50% across board. Um, and they also rewrote the web pages to make it more slim. So take advantage of probably responsive design and cleaner HTML. Um, and they feel that they're going to improve on that over time. They serve the same amount of traffic, and they ended up having less hardware to support the Node.js uh, new rewrites, which is interesting. Right, because it's not a thread per request. So it's consuming less memory, less context switching, so it's actually a lot more lightweight. Great, yeah. Very interesting that Node.js was um, the platform. You know, basically we talked before about other, like, quote-unquote great VMs or great platforms to run stuff and multiple languages run on top. So it's very interesting that they found that, that Node.js was sufficient. Yeah. There's so many modules in NPM now. I think people get Node, and it's like, you know, Java has a lot of libraries. For example, Python has a lot of li- Well, okay, Node has all this stuff I can work with out of the box. Let's, you know, let's look at it. Right, right. The other interesting thing they did was to write the Nginx module. Um, we use Nginx as well, and Nginx modules are really fast. Nginx is really lightweight, and you basically compile the stuff right into it. So you can do some pretty interesting things where normally you might think of a, writing a specific extension to your web server as um, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to write it. You know, I'm, I'm going to do 
my own thing and, and I'm at my app server and I'm going to ignore the web server, which I've largely did. But with Nginx, you can do some pretty interesting things and they're lightning fast and it's so tiny that um, there's some, that's just something to consider. And these are little C modules, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's like a real key piece of it. We should try to get a hold of him and see if we can get one of the engineers and do a dev uh, tech cast. I'm sure he'd be open to it. Um, and Sean McCullough is doing a lot of comments in the in the threads. Uh, Sean McCullough looks like one of their developers uh, or people in that group. Um, you know, he was talking about uh, you know like various things. So read through the comments. Also, Adam Guidi, uh, who did the write actually uh, did the writing of the article, has a lot of comments too. So they're definitely worth it as well. Okay, I'm going to finally take a stab at something I've been pushing up and up and up to the next week over and over again because I feel dumb trying to explain it. Um, but I think that what I'd like to do is pull back to a reference to another piece that this main article talked about, and uh, that might make more sense to everyone. So, so traditionally, when you're dealing with multi-threading in something like Java, you have to deal with some sort of locking mechanism. And so, you know, typically you'll use a, a lock or a semaphore or something, uh, some sort of technique to try to keep threads, you know, to synchronize against an object or make them synchronize methods. So there was this this uh, this blog from a, a blog called psy-lob-saw, scilob saw, and don't get the joke yet, I will eventually, .blogspot.com, uh, psychomatic lobotomy saw. Uh, and it's uh, the other sub quote to his page is it's X you'll need Y I'll get Z, uh, but he has this um, this uh, let's see um, SPSC revisited part three, um, so this is the idea of having a single process single thread, um, or I should say that's not the right term for it. It's it's a library that does not use locks essentially, and you have lots of processes accessing things. And he deals with all sorts of very low level technical stuff about you know the size of the processor word and where things live in cache and how objects close together are easier to access and you have fast memory uh, connections to them. Um, and so it turns out that there's a fast flow library that someone wrote. Um, and uh, they're porting it to Java. So in the middle of all this analysis, he wrote this three-part article series. I'm going to post it. <laughs> I'm going to point out that it's there. But that's not really the focus of what we're talking about today. Um, that will make your head hurt unless you're like a really low-level ring buffer coder, like really deep, uh, high-performance memory type uh, person. But what he did mention in there was a very interesting article. Um, and let's see, that is a project actually called RW Concurrency. Uh, that was put out, um, and it's been around for a little while, but uh, two months ago it had been updated. Um, and it's a GitHub project from MJPT777, RW Concurrency. And it shows various lock-based and then lock-free algorithms. And it turns out that the reason they did it was because there's a JSR coming out, uh, JSR 166. Uh, 166 is um, a new concurrency update, and there's a new type of lock there. Um, and now that I'm trying to talk about this in real time, let me actually pull up the project. I'm going to actually pause this for a second. Okay, guys, so join in as we start talking about this. But I'm specifically looking at this, this project. And you just need Ant. That's all you need in Java 7 to build this. Uh, and uh, they're using this new um, locking type called a stamp lock. He wanted to see if the, the new stamp lock type uh, made any difference in terms of uh, concurrency performance. Uh, and so there's actually a blog entry that, that attaches to this. But if I ran this, you would find that uh, his um, lock-free spaceship, so the idea is they're making a, a fake game, and the spaceship can move in an X and Y axis at different points. 
And so you're testing how many of those points you can move at a time and how concurrent it is against multiple processes trying to move those spaceships around. So he runs these benchmarks over and over again, you know, one reader, one writer, one multiple readers, one writer, multiple readers, multiple writers, and he comes up with some benchmarks. And so it turns out that uh, the lock-free one does like 100, on, on my laptop at home, did like 156 million of those a, a second or something like that. That may be crazy, but some huge number of accesses to this object. But the faster ones actually were things like, um, so that's much faster than everything else. The stamp lock didn't perform as fast as they thought it would. Um, and I think it was the read-write lock that performed pretty well. Anyway, the point being, uh, not that I'm going to interpret the results for you, but you should take a look at the code because it shows you different approaches. They're very simple project uh, with a little tiny um, uh, class that shows you the access to the lock. So, for example, if I look at the, uh, the regular old synchronized spaceship, uh, both the read position and the move method, which are the, the reading and the writing method, are both just synchronized. And so it showed the performance for that, which was the bottom of the, of the barrel. And then it looked at, for example, like read-write lock, which is another lock in, in the util package. Um, there's read-write lock. And basically you can turn on – you can create a, a read-write lock. From that, get a read lock and a write lock handle. And then you can lock for read or write. So that one was another approach. Uh, the reentrant lock. Um, in that one, you do you create a reentrant lock and you just do lock.lock .lock and lock.unlock when you're finished with something. Uh, clearly in a finally method, because otherwise you're in a nightmare if you forget to unlock it. Uh, and then they use a stamp lock. And so the stamp lock, it's a optimistic concurrency kind of thing where it tries to modify, checking to see if the timestamp that it last had was modified. So it turns out that didn't perform all that well, especially on repeated calls compared to their you know, um, lock-free. The lock-free was like three times faster than anything else they had. Sure. And you go look at the lock-free one, and that's when you start seeing array math and all sorts of crazy stuff mm -hmm. there. Um, well, the processor architecture support that now. There's instruction sets for the compare right. and set, so it's, and there's a lot less contention. Oh, you know what? And also, I'm not completely correct about that. So, so yes, it is. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on in here, but he uses a library to do that. Um, he is actually using the uh, atomic reference right. of a position, and that's how he's moving things along in the lock-free mode. Yep. So that's what you're talking about, Yeah, right? the compare and set operation there. Cool. So anyway, so it's something to look at just in case you do have to do lock-based programming and you want to see the alternative to doing locks, you can see that, that you can use atomic references to things. Right. Um, I don't know if anyone has any comments about that, but that's way over my head. We've used it before, I mean, in general, just like atomic uh, counters, for example, mm -hmm. atomic long, atomic integer. It's great when you have a number of threads that need to sort of update the same counter. And okay. it uses lock-free algorithm basically to do that. And how does it how does it make sure that it's in sequence? Is it is it around some sort of timestamping or something? It's, or? it's similar to a timestamp in the sense that you're you're not using a timestamp. You're comparing and setting a value. So it's like the, you know, update, select for update, update where. So it's like okay, if I this was the value it was before, this is what I want to set it to. If I if the value that was there is still there. Go ahead and set it. If it's not, that means another thread updated it. Get the new value and try and try again. So there's like a trial and error thing it has to do. Right. Yeah. That's that's great. And and actually, I mean, I'm glad we're talking about it too because I clearly didn't grasp it completely. I'm not really doing a lot of threading code. Last time I did it was in like 1999 on a project with Joel. Um, true threading, <laughs> where we had to do it ourselves by hand. Um, I just walked away from that and said, I'll let the server do that for me. <laughs> but uh, it's you know, as Joel and I were just talking about this on on a, on a pause here, um, it's important to um, you know consider this stuff because I think math is going to get involved in some of these multiprocessor things and lock-free algorithms, right? Yeah, I mean, I, we just did a quick you know look on the the basis for that somebody that this cited, uh, the author of this blog post cited Leslie Lampert, who's a mathematician, computer science uh, guy. 
who worked at Microsoft Research and Compaq and Digital Equipment. And so he's kind of a heavy-duty researcher. And, um, yeah, and, and it's, he describes a book um, from a while ago but called Specifying Systems, this language he wrote, and Tools for Hardware and Software Engineers, where um, he did a lot of kind of temporal logic of actions. Um, and some of his work is used in the Paxos algorithm and different things. So bottom line is when we're talking about reactive programming, concurrent, Node.js, a lot of these different things that um, we are talking about a lot more, you know, there's some heavy-duty math and, yeah. and lock-free kind of stuff that goes underneath right. that. We as programmers may or may not be directly exposed to it depending on the level of abstraction, but it's certainly worth understanding. Kind of a funny quote is that this guy, uh, you know, who is a heavy-duty scientist who I can tell just by his beard and hair length, <laughs> like I don't mess with people with giant beards. And um, you know, yes. he, his book was defined by him as a chaotic, you know, like Don Quixote, chaotic attempt to overcome engineers' uh, antipathy towards mathematics. This yeah. guy wrote the paper on LMAX disruptor. It's his technical paper. Are we talking paper. about Martin Thompson here? Yeah, he wrote yes. it. So this is the so – I buried the lead on this. It's Martin Thompson who's the person who wrote this up. Oh, so who wrote the uh, – Yeah, wrote this project up because he was attending. In fact, I now have the link. So you'll, you'll all be looking at this going – as you're listening to this saying, why didn't you just talk in order, Ken? But it was um, – his website is mechanical-sympathy.blogspot.co.uk. And the the one article is from Monday, August 26th, and that's called Lock-Based versus Lock-Free Concurrent Algorithms, which is what this project – backs up so it's the analysis of it is on that blog post and it is fascinating you guys really need to read this stuff because he's he's so smart he's one of those really smart guys that can explain things really well Mm. right and And my addled brain i was actually sort of getting it and then i ran out of time and said at least i'll share it with a group right like the disruptor paper he wrote mm -hmm. obviously gets it gets into parts where i stop understanding some stuff but of course yeah they really distilled it down and they break it down to like exactly like what modern computers do what they used to do and how we've coded before, how we can code now. And it's, it's, it's a great paper for, I think, any programmer to read. Yeah. And it's funny because, as you're mentioning that, like, the one parts where I start failing to understand, I think mine's a lot earlier than yours. You're a lot smarter <laughs> than I am. But um, I looked at that. No. And, I, and I looked at the presentation. He also has a slide deck on this stuff, too. And without him talking, I definitely couldn't follow it. It was a very, very technical paper. So man's very smart. Definitely something to look at, especially if you're looking at trying to, you know, maximize the concurrency of a very, very... A high intensive processing system, and you're using more modern things like Scala or Java, and you want to take advantage of some of these techniques. Cool. All right. So um, I'm going to pull up another one here, uh, kind of go on the Ken Hogg's the podcast for a moment talk. Um, and so uh, the next one is there's a API for, speaking of Ruby, there's an API for, um, um, let's see, for RabbitMQ that has just been updated to 1.0.0 release called Bunny. So if you've got to do AMQP, uh, you know, fast queuing, and you want to do it from Ruby, uh, there were a couple APIs out there. Uh, Bunny's been around since 2009, uh, but it was completely rewritten between 2012 and 2013. Uh, It's redesigned for multi-core CPUs. Uh, There's decent documentation. Uh, And then there's a nice little kind of overview of uh, Bunny uh, on that website. So just a quick note. I don't know if you've ever used AMQP for anything, but... No, but that's cool. I mean, we may, we actually Redis actually works out as a pretty nice um, message queue. Talk about Resk. Mm-hmm. What's that? Talk about Resk. What's Resk? Resk is a Redis based queuing for Ruby. Oh, is that what it oh, is? Oh, uh, well, there's uh, not talking about Resk, but okay. we we um, maybe I am because okay. we use <laughs> Resk. We use Resq, which is the oh, that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. I, oh, okay, yeah. I just read it as Resk, so I'm like, okay, Resk. Well, we call it Rescue, but okay, hey, Rescue. Hey, I was at the doctor's. You today. say potato, I say Rescue. No. Right. I, I have no idea how to pronounce it. <laughs> I was at the doctor's today, that. and they said it was a capillary. 
A capillary, very Instead nice. A, she said, or as you might call it, a capillary. Sounds like a pasta dish. <laughs> as we all might call it. <laughs> gotta try that next time we go to Maggiano. <laughs> well, anyway, so if you're if you're doing anything uh, with with uh, AMQP and you want to do it on on Ruby, there's a uh, Bunny 1.0.0. I mostly noted it for the funny API name. It is pretty. The Bunny yeah. for RabbitMQ. <laughs> anyway, so uh, there's a lot of documentation on the site. So uh, uh, blog.rubyrabbitmq.info is where that is. All right. Um, I'm going to skip over the next one and have someone else have a chance here for their, their articles. Let's do the iCommoner iOS plugin. Uh, yeah, iCommoner, I guess, iOS plugin. So interesting, um, basically, this company who makes uh, ways that you can monetize for your mobile apps. So they actually let you monetize your mobile app, get this, by including their plugin, which will then do Bitcoin mining on your person's game. <laughs> so I bring up your game, and then it does Bitcoin mining in the background, and then you get a little cut of that. And that's a way to monetize free games. And, you know, so pretty funny. You, you know this was coming, right? Because yeah. basically you're selling CPU cycles, right? Of course. And so... Um, Can you explain Bitcoin mining? I don't know what that oh, is. Oh, yeah. Sorry. So Bitcoin is this online currency, which you know what Bitcoin is, Yeah, right? I don't know what the term mining was. So the way that you get Bitcoins, the way that this whole system works is... You go to you, jail. <laughs> That's how it ends up. I know. But how it starts <clears throat> is you run a program which runs through these basically large math problems, and every once in a long while, it produces a new Bitcoin. So it's called Bitcoin mining. It's the way they control the flow of Bitcoins. So that basically a Bitcoin is worth roughly X amount of CPU cycles, and that's based in the Bitcoin system. That's how it works. So if you contribute so much processing power, and I think it's a lot, you have a chance at getting a Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin's worth real money. So basically, imagine like the SETI system or the other things where you're loaning bits of your CPU. Well, in this case, you're loaning bits of your CPU to actually let this other dude um, mine for Bitcoins. And then when he gets money, he shares that back out with you as an affiliate. Okay. So it's an interesting so, system, yeah. but like, you know, it sounds evil. Yes. <laughs> I, t- I take it back. That, I, I didn't know what Bitcoin yeah. was now so, that you say so, it. So, so is he sitting there petting a kitty on an island right. that's artificial in the middle <laughs> but, of the day? But you know, you know, then you go to this ICO play and you look at the ICO miner FAQ. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty upfront. You know, they, um, they say, Hey, look, people have been kind of outraged about this, but Will users know that it's happening? Yes. They will put a little logo in the corner when the mining's occurring, right? Can you turn it off? Yes. Users should never be stuck with anything, but they will be able to turn it off. You know, will I be a millionaire? No. So, like, <laughs> it starts to sound, like, fairly legit. So, like, I guess do the, do the other one. If I'm a user, right, and I've got my iPhone, which is basically sitting there, you know, not doing a lot, and they say, hey, you can run this super cool app, but, you know, you will have... To, in order to make this the free version, you have to run you know some background process for uh, Bitcoin mining. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I maybe I don't care because otherwise I would have to pay for this app. You know, if I set up an EC2 cluster to do Bitcoin mining, will I make a net profit or not? No, you won't because okay. of the uh, the cost for the EC2 and the electricity and okay. stuff. So so that's the bo- bottom line. They, whoever set up Bitcoins is some kind of crazy genius. And the crazy part is nobody even knows who did it. That's the other thing. That's even better. But the algorithm is such that you, um, you know, that the electricity will, like, you know, cost you more. Or whatever. Maybe a computer invented it. So here's, here's a quick note. I'm looking at mtgoxgox.com, and there's a live graph of the price of a Bitcoin. So as of the last 24 hours, it has fluctuated one Bitcoin 
between two hundred and ten and two hundred and thirty five dollars a bitcoin. It is, but but it fluctuates really oh, yeah. wild. I'm sure like, like, per bitcoin. Like, per yeah, per bitcoin. bitcoin. Yeah, but yeah. See, it's gone like yeah. But if you look at, if you look at it for like the past five Are there years, fractions though, of a bitcoin. Then I, I think so. But it started okay. off at like ten cents a bitcoin or something. You know, yeah. and like it, it's, wow. But it's like as people speculate, it just goes crazy. Is it only redeemable in whole numbers? So you have to have like a whole bitcoin unit to make. You know, get the money. Honestly, I have no idea what okay. brokers will sell you. Darn it's it. It's all wow. what brokers will do. And there's, like, the, you okay. know, there's, there's, then, because you have to convert bitcoins into actual dollars to buy anything. But then, of course, there was a big thing with the Silk Road just got busted. There was an entire yeah. basic, um, yeah, this is, there was an underground economy that wants to pay in bitcoins, not in actual government's yeah. currency. Uh, That's it, not allowed here. At least. No, it is allowed. Aren't no, no, they, it. they did. They, um, the, somebody ruled that, um, that bitcoin is not, it is basically not fungible. It's somehow you don't get thrown in jail immediately for having one. There's like a 30-day period, and then you get thrown in jail. No. So enjoy putting that in your app, and um, when, <laughs> yeah, when you I, hear the, but, you know, on your door, just make sure that you look through the people first. But it's interesting to wow. sell CPU cycles, right, for yeah. a free app. So I'll give you this software if then you become part of my Hadoop cluster. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out the cure for, I don't know, I bad, mean, bad code. I mean, it's ingenious from the plugin developer. <laughs> Yes, it is. Okay, um, let's see. I found another one completely unrelated, and it seems like it's going to be an awful one to pick. However, um, there's a point. Um, I was reading through, I forget what, what uh, my, my uh, readership, uh, all my various blogs, and I found, uh, on the outset, forgive the title, Why Movie Critics Hate Tyler Perry. And the point was, and that basically this all boils down, he's a long analysis, and it's got data behind it and everything, is the point that we have fractionated off into lots of niche groups mm-hmm. in America and probably everywhere else that has you know, multiple media sources and Internet and everything. And so there are a group of people that really love Tyler Perry's work, and the critics are not that group of people at all because right. they're not from the same social economic status and they don't feel the same way about it. They don't like Star Wars either. They don't like Star Wars either. They don't, they don't like a lot of things, you know. Um, so they have their, you know, quote-unquote all-time best movies that they go after for their archetype of good movies. And the thing is that they really don't mean much. They mean a lot to other critics, right. but they don't mean a lot to everybody else. I just found the article really fun reading because you get to read about the difference between, you know, what the critics feel about something, the audiences that attend and select the things they want to see. For example, there's like a 50% spread, um, 40% spread, a mean differential between what critics think and what Tyler Perry's fans think. And they bring in lots and lots and lots of money. Right. And so you can say about almost any niche, you know, Firefly, for example, I'm sure big numbers of people that we're all like rolling dice when we have time, you know, <laughs> can I roll a D20? We're all that group, you know? Um, and so the point being that, you know, data, you know, as you're looking at your analysis, the data, your analysis, of what's going on needs to be factored into some of this stuff. And it's more important that the niches and self-selecting groups get paid attention to and get brought up like Netflix. He brings us a perfect example, Netflix or I, you know, iTunes or Hulu, because these groups, these systems are making all these relevant connections aware for niche audiences. Hmm. Just a very interesting thing. You, you look at, for example, what the recommendations are and what the difference between the Netflix recommendations and such are. And it's, it's, it's a lot closer. So fun thing to read. Um, not really all about Tyler Perry, more about, you know, just in general, like how data, uh, isn't being tracked by critics because they they are self-selecting what they want to see, and it's not what there's no longer a mainstream audience where everyone goes to the same critics to look at things hmm. in this world of lots of choices and big data. So anyway, I know it's a complete tangent thing, but it's a kind of a fun data discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. 
Who wants to do taming text? Yeah, I'll do that. So um, Chariot had Data I.O. conference Indeed. Uh, uh, last Wednesday. It was really good. There were a lot of interesting speakers. One of them, Grant uh, Ingersoll, he is a general smart person, works on Apache Solar and Apache Mahout. Um, and he wrote a book, Taming Text. And so he had some really good talks. Um, you know, search is a really hard problem, and unstructured text is a really hard problem. And if you're like me, uh, until recently, you know, my the way I dealt with unstructured text was I threw it in the database and I did a like clause. You know, yeah. like like you know that was pretty close, right? That's right. a match, or maybe regex if I was feeling dangerous. <laughs> so like that was how I dealt with unstructured text. But it's actually way more complicated than that. And with Hadle, search is a big part of the product, so we've had to learn a lot more about search, and um, it's really interesting. And, and so he talks this basically. I think this book is good for any programmer at all, just as a basic background on search on natural language processing. It comes at it, it's not too hard, like it doesn't have presuppositions that you know a ton about the subject matter, yet it's not too general. It's not something you can just read in a blog post. I mean, it literally starts with, here is English, here's what the words break down to. You know, remember grammar school when you had nouns and verbs and all this stuff. And then, you know, here's some of the thorny problems in search. And really, a common problem that I encounter is, you know, many, many search engines from many different products and just that you encounter produce suboptimal results, I'll say. You know, you go onto your wiki and you search for something and you get nothing. You're like, why is this happening? You know, <laughs> you go into your, you know, search on your hard drive or whatever and you can't find things. And so you, you tend to think of like searching or dealing with text as like, oh, there's just this black box search thingy and I just throw things at it and it produces good results. When in reality, it's way more nuanced than that. And you understanding what you're trying to get out and the, uh, helps a lot. And the fact that no matter what search tool or engine you use, and I'm talking about search, but he's also talking about natural language processing, which is slightly different. That's parsing text into its pieces. But to get meaning from text, basically, you actually have to understand quite a bit. And there's really several disciplines that blend together, search and natural language processing and other things. And um, the more you're aware of those, the more that will help you. This isn't for somebody who's writing a search engine, but if you're going to use something like Lucene, uh, which is a great you know search tool, indexing tool, or you're going to use um, you know, something in your day-to-day activity. Search is like people's whole lives. Like there's some people like Grant, who that's just what they do for an entire career. Right. But you you can't do that without spending your whole career. But you can read this book and get a good overview. That's kind of how I view machine wow. learning, which he touches on. Machine learning and search are definitely on the same continuum of trying to make meaning out of in this case, text, machine learning, other things. Yeah, we should get a copy of this book. It, it seems really good. good. I mean, the Hadle dev team, we're reading it, and, um, you know, it's um, so far, it's good. Cool. The other author on this, uh, he's a primary developer. Sorry, the other author on this is a primary developer of OpenNLP. Right, and that's they like talk a, a lot about. thing that a lot of these other tools use to do the tokenization, yep. segmentation, that kind of stuff. You can see his chapters start with, like, this is a subject, a verb, a preposition. You're like, oh, wait, this actually makes a lot of sense. But then it becomes really, like, you're trying to make meaning of oh, this. Oh, right, the part of speech tagging. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty right. cool. yeah. We could do uh, the link that's sort of related to what uh, Joel was just talking about with the search and machine learning. Uh, there's a thing that just came out recently called Prediction I.O. It's an open source machine learning server for software developers to create predictive features such as personalization, recommendation, you know, collaborative filtering. Hmm. It's basically a server that's set up and you can feed information into it. It'll index things. It'll, it'll do a lot of these algorithms that Joel was talking about, and, uh, like clustering and classification and things like that. Sort of takes care of all that. Sort of black, black box-ish. Can't pronounce that word, <laughs> but yes. it sort of gives you a platform to do that, so you don't have to do it all from scratch. Ooh. So it bootstraps it and then allows you to just sort of slowly, you know, weave that into your into your system. 
Okay, this looks awesome, but I have never heard of it, and I'm kind of paying attention to the machine learning space. So what? where did it come from? Did aliens I just drop this off? I don't know where it came off? from. I think it just came out I need very to recently because I just heard about it this weekend. Wow, because oh. like one of the things like Mahout, which is the Apache machine learning tool or library, when that got started, which was like five years ago, but they said like one of the reasons they started it was there were no good open source libraries really for machine learning. Now there are, but I'm very, this is, looks very interesting. Yeah, this I don't looks, know what it uses like behind the scenes. I know like in Python world, you use scikit-learn is their machine learning thing, but what does it say there? It's a, it's, so I looked at the link that you click on to try it, and it, it goes to the Amazon Web Service Marketplace to boot a VM. Um, so you're going to boot an EC2 instance oh, wow. that has everything loaded. But this is open source, or you have to pay for it? It's saying it's open source. Well, pricing details, so hourly fees. <laughs> that's for, that's for that's Amazon. For that's, that's not yeah. for – yeah, mar- Prediction I, on the website, it says open source, yeah, clearly. Yeah. The, the marketplace right. is actually very cool, by the way. We use the Amazon marketplace for other things for Hado. So and I think the difference is that the, you can download the API for free and use it. You, you can launch a pre-built a, uh, AMI and pay for the, and pay for the usage, okay. which is kind of cool if you want to really just get started yeah. and just launch something. And it has Ruby, Python, PHP, and Java bindings. This looks awesome. Yeah, dude, this is that's something to play with. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, wanna, I would definitely want to check this very, out. Very, very cool. Got to dig into this. We'll, do, we'll come back once we find out who wrote it and grill them. <laughs> because you don't just like pull these things out of the air. Like yeah. somebody spent some time on this. This is yeah. based on something. Yeah. And I, my concern was something like this would be a black box and it wouldn't be customizable. But then I'm like reading a little into it and it's saying they made it so you could actually add modules to it and extend it, which that's interesting. Then if it was something that you couldn't really do much with out of the box, then I don't know. So let's talk about something else that we we uh, dealt with at, at Data IO. So so we had Lance Ball out talking about Vertex, and I really am starting to dig Vertex. Yeah, it seems like a very interesting platform. There's a lot of language bindings for it. Uh, Lance is uh, his main job is he's the main committer on the JavaScript module. So any time you write Vertex in JavaScript, he's the person to make sure that that module functions, uh, that language. Um, so he has an example, uh, actually, a whole thing. Uh, if you go to uh, github.com slash lance slash data io 2013, which I'll, again, put a post to. But uh, that is the website for the GitHub project, which was his slide presentation and sample code all running in Vertex. Cool. And he, he was basically running uh, a bunch of uh, what, what's the uh, presentation JS. I forget, forget what the API is. Um, but JavaScript presentation API, and he just served it through uh, Vertex. Reveal.js, maybe? Reveal, thank you. It was Reveal.js. And then he also had uh, JavaScript sample code as well, going through different types of things to do. So that's, first of all, if you're curious about um, you know, uh, Vertex at all, it's a really interesting thing. He does like a little fake election, but he's electing, like he has a little uh, click, and he uses, I think, Backbone and um, underscore templates. And he has a voting system where you can click and anybody with a browser open immediately gets an update through through uh, you know eventing basically that there was an update to a vote for a particular yeah. person. Their event, distributed event bus that has it. a client side feature too, so you can actually talk to it and, and like publish, subscribe from the web tier, which is really cool. And we posted a note to that. Um, I actually, uh, oh, right, yeah. I, I think maybe you put that in there, or maybe I, I, yeah, I, I think yeah, that, that, that was the part did. I thought was the coolest about yeah. Vertex. Was sort of I mean, it's cool in a lot of ways. Spans that gap between like servers and standalone apps, and now it's on the web too. Right. Yeah, because Ajax, you know, is obviously kind of a 
clunky way to have to do calls. And so this sure. allows you to take this better abstraction, which is... To an event. Yeah, which is just like um, I publish, subscribe kind of thing. Yes. And now I'm in the browser doing it. It seemed really, really nice. Yeah, basically you can publish by sending something and you can register an event handler for that thing. And that's it. Yeah, and you're on the event sounds bus. Sounds awesome, man. And if anybody cares about it, they, the guy at the presentation said SockJS is the magic underneath. Yeah. yeah. So. Yep, yep. That's yep. right. So anyway, so if you're interested in Vertex, I thought it was a very good presentation. It opened my eyes as to how easy it is to get started with, with Vertex. Yeah. Too. Did anyone ask him? I know he's a JavaScript guy. Uh, I know Scala on the roadmap for that. Did it is out. Ask him when, is out. Oh, I thought Scala was out already. Okay. Yeah, oh, it was. I thought he did. I thought in his example he used the Scala oh, closure. Closure was the newest. Yeah, because any kind of. I mean, I don't understand if it's JVM based. Then obviously they could just run any kind of JVM thing, right? Let me double check the Scala part. They probably built like specific bindings to be like closure-ish, with yeah. Yeah. and then Scala-ish. Here it is. Modlang. Oh, uh, sweet. Vertex 2.0 came out and. There's a Vertex Modlang Scala. And awesome. so if you're a Scala dude or dudette, cool as hell. Wow. you will have the ability to do Scala. So pretty cool. 2.0.3 or higher. I'd love to hear if anybody's doing like, so like, um, you know, some kind of like large scale thing on Vertex because the feature list is phenomenal. Yeah. But like you just, you know, it has like all this kind of stuff, but you really don't know until you get like a large installation on it. Not saying it's doesn't do this because it may very well but you know things have a certain battle testedness to them and then when you get up like you know to a big site then maybe it is where you counter the problems but when you hear something like groupon using node.js or whatever you know those are good data points right the thing that it uses underneath hazelcast to do is distributed event bus and all that and like basically concurrent shared collections across the cluster so i was talking to anatoly uh one of our cherry colleagues Mm -hmm. about that and he used it on a project a couple years ago at Hazelcast, and he said it's rock solid, that piece of software. So it's built, so Vertex is built on like, you know, NIO, NetE type things, mm-hmm. and then this Hazelcast. So it's built on a rock solid foundation. I forgot about Hazelcast. I had looked into that a while. I was impressed um, by it. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, speaking of Vertex, while we're at it, um, <laughs> actually speaking more of JBoss, uh, we got a nice little feedback note from Lincoln Baxter of the Scene uh, project originally and also of uh, the JBoss Forge. And he, he must have heard right away about this. <laughs> he did because he retweeted my tweet of the of the podcast last week. <laughs> he, he said, you guys are hilarious. That was the comment I got back. And then he was really nice. He actually sent the podcast to the entire JBoss Forge team. So I want to say welcome to anyone from the JBoss Forge team who's listening. Howdy. Sweet. Yeah, very Welcome. cool. We also got two really nice um, tweets out there. Let me let me just get uh, the Twitter stuff up. Um, but while I'm getting that, um, if you want to send us any f- feedback on Twitter, we're at TechCast. And, uh, you know, it was nice. We were asking because we really haven't really pushed for uh, anybody to get back to us. But we said, hey, can we get some feedback from people who are listening? And we got two really nice, you know, thank you, keep listening tweets. Uh, which was really nice. So, yeah, if you want to talk about anything, especially if you want to talk about your use of Vertex or of Node or of you're a Ruby person and you're very annoyed that uh, people are moving from monolithic Ruby apps to non-monolithic Node apps instead of <laughs> if you're Joel, for example. Um, anyway, so, yeah, hit us at, at TechCast or you can email us at techcastfeedback at chariotsolutions.com. All right, I think we had one more. This is This is in the scary world. Did I skip anybody else's? I don't think so. But this is, all right, if, if I told you that there was a virus that could jump gaps in the air and infect a computer, would you call me crazy? Yes. I'm still trying to process that. <laughs> yeah, all right, so for example, you have a machine that was infected, and you, you, you took it off the network or was never on your network, and it's still running in your office. Do you think it's even possible for it to infect something that's not physically connected? 
Not unless you consider alien technology. And there may be. So what is it? Any technology is significantly advanced is indistinguishable from magic, <laughs> is the quote. So this is mysterious Mac and PC malware that jumps air gaps. From Ars Technica, the security blog, 2013. This is by Dan Gooden. Uh, and there's a guy out there, a security consultant, Dragos Rui. Uh, he was in his lab, and he noticed that his MacBook Air, he just installed a copy of OS X. It spontaneously updated the firmware, which is what EFI or whatever it is. And, it, and basically, he tried to boot the machine off a of CD-ROM, and it refused it. And he thought, uh, how, the, how the heck could this be possible? Um, he didn't know then, but uh, this is quoting the article, that odd firmware update would become a high-stakes malware mystery that consumed most of his waking hours. So this is kind of like conspiracy theory world. Is this a Halloween prank or something? I don't know. I don't think so. Reading the comments. Uh, October reading, 31st. And there's a lot of incredulous people writing the comments. It's, not, like, a Hol- I, it's not a Hollywood hoax. Um, I'm going to keep going. Yeah, so no, I don't think so. No. He actually says, Dan Gooden says, Dear R's readers at the bottom, as a journalist for more than 17 years, I've never written a spoof story for April Fool's Day or any other holiday. Certainly had no intention of doing so for this article. It's completely coincidental the story ran on Halloween. So, yeah, he definitely doesn't think so. Although all over the internet, it's next-gen malware, digital myth, but the people are saying it's Well, people not think a myth. it's crazy. People, yeah, but people are saying it's not a myth. So here's the st- here, I dug into this article a bit and read it and went, yeah, right. Uh, apparently, ultrasonic sound Theoretically, now this sounds crazy because I know that frequency response for speakers generally are from 20 to 20,000 hertz. And how could it do higher than that unless the speaker is capable of emitting something higher than that? So that's where I call BS on this, but now I'll be attacked. Um, (laughs) But the point is that, that somehow they are able to communicate and send packets to networks in ultrasound. I tend to not believe this, but I think there are high frequency things. There's that security company that came out with that iPhone app a while ago. Oh, I forget the name, where they actually do the sort of like the two-factor authentication right? with your phone right there. And it knows it, you don't even need to log in. If your phone is there, your computer emits a certain thing that this app can recognize. It's like a digital fingerprint via some ultrasonic frequency. And it just logs in for you. It's like instant authentication. So what he's finding is he's finding all these machines are basically, even if they're isolated, they're able to be infected. Um, and he thinks the original vector came in from a USB drive. Uh, and that 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 I think that's what it was in the article, if I remember reading it correctly, and that it will do anything it can to replicate itself on or off network to other systems and devices, Mac, PC, Linux. Hmm. So yay, everybody! Just imagine, and so, it won't be removed by you know you you can't actually remove it uh, by loading an operating system. You'd have to junk your drive and everything. They're even thinking that like some cer- certain types of controllers can have this put into their firmware. So. Hmm. Nasty. It's called Bad Bios. So if you like conspiracy theories and you think the guy's crazy, you'll enjoy this. And if you are scared by it, well, then talk to him or something. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But a uh, happy Halloween. But it is, it is an actual article on Ars Technica. So, yeah, that'll get everyone going. Uh, that's it. So, hey, on that really positive note, that is the developer news for <laughs> Monday, November 4th, 2013. Again, uh, you can get to us by going to our, our Chariot website. Uh, go to emergingtech.chariotsolutions.com. Go to the podcasts. Uh, and soon, within a month or so, you'll be able to actually go to us from the direct Chariot Solutions site and subscribe to us right from there. Uh, but all the links will still work. So that's it. So for the developer news this week, I'm Ken Ripple. I'm Sujan Kapadia. I'm Joel Kampani. And be careful of the bad bias. <laughs>